Matthew chapter 12 is the text this morning. And as we get into this message um, on <clears throat> unforgivable, as we're continuing our series and journey through the gospel of Matthew, I realized this morning in the subject test, when you, when you go through a book of the Bible, you're going to really get varied amount of uh, topics all throughout the scripture. And of course, Jesus and his main concern was to get the gospel out, to set the stage for the cross, for the resurrection, for salvation. This is primarily really a salvation type of uh, passage. And so if you're already a believer today, you may walk out saying or think as you're walking in to this passage, well, this just isn't for me. You know, I, this is for somebody that doesn't know Christ, not for me. But I'm going to ask you, first of all, to ask yourself some questions about this passage. But also, I believe it's very, very um, appropriate and applicable to the Christian uh, as we walk with Christ. Because it's going to give us a lot of answers that we need when we go and, and share Christ with someone. Because someone you know is either dealing or has dealt with this question, with this problem with in, in their challenge in their life, and that is an unforgivable sin. I want to read in chapter 12 and just a couple of verses here to get us started. It says, Therefore, I tell you, Jesus said, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. So the question here is this morning, have you committed the unforgivable sin? Well, we think about that for just a moment, and we think, first of all, I've preached all my life, you never get beyond God's forgiveness, and we know that forgiveness is maybe the greatest gift of all, it's a staple doctrine of the Bible, and so how could there be one sin that Jesus would designate to say, it is so heinous and so awful that I will not even forgive it. Wow, would that be something of the flesh, murder, adultery? Or is it something of the heart, the pride, the selfishness? Or is it something maybe altogether? And as we do look at this passage today, I, I would say again, there's someone probably in this room that has asked that question, and you know what sin you're thinking about. It could be anything, but you feel so guilty about something you've done before that you think, God will never forgive me. Well, is that the question? Will God forgive you? Well, not only that, but I would say this to you, that I almost, as a teenager, committed this sin. Came very close to committing the unpardonable or unforgiving given sin in a person's life. Now, as we open this, we have to understand the setting of everything that's gone on so far in our series brings us up, brings us up to this, but also the, the exact direct setting of this passage interprets it for us. Apart from the setting, we just, we just are guessing. But with the setting, with the context of things, we understand what's going on. So let's look at it. And first of all, I want us to see <clears throat> the setting. And let me say this beforehand. Any sin that you want to be forgiven of, God will forgive. We'll come back to that. The setting. Verse 1 in chapter 12, Jesus begins to talk, and he begins to still perform miracles before the great crowds. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields of the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and eat. 
But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read that David, what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? And he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence. And we could read on, but down here in verse 8, it says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So there is a conflict here between the beliefs of the people, the Pharisees, and Jesus. His role and, and what he's about. And the Pharisees were very, very traditional. In fact, <clears throat> like most of us, in fact, every one of us probably, we try to find out the ways to appease God or to please God without really having to follow God. And that has been true ever since Adam and Eve came on the scene. And so we're looking at the Pharisees and they're thinking, what, what can I do? Well, I need to obey God and I need to obey the laws. In fact, I'll I'll obey so many laws, and, and these aren't enough. I still don't feel righteous in God's eyes, and so I'm going to add laws to that. They had 39 traditional laws added to the Bible, just about the Sabbath day only. One of them, for example, was that a woman could not look in the mirror on the Sabbath day. Okay? And the reason for that is she may see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. And you think that's crazy, but that's the way the laws were. And so you see that they got barriers, and there's nothing wrong with barriers in your life, but sometimes the barrier itself can become like a sin. You know, first of all, you know, it's not, it wasn't against the Sabbath law in the Old Testament to pull out a gray hair. But we'll just say that's kind of a barrier. Whoa, we don't want that either, so that becomes a sin. Then it becomes a sin even to look inside into a mirror because you don't want to be tempted, and temptation, everybody knows, is a sin back then in the Pharisees' minds, but it wasn't in the Bible. See, we get confused sometimes. We think that God or Jesus uh, committed some kind of law-breaking, but he doesn't really break God's laws. He breaks the laws of the traditional Pharisees. And so we get the setting is they are livid about them, Jesus breaking the laws. How can this guy be the Messiah? I mean, he can't be. We all know that. He just can't be the Christ and break God's laws, but what they couldn't see was that they were making their laws equal with God's laws in their life. And so there's a conflict. Then in verse 9, he says, there's a man with a withered hand, and he heals this man. And again, the Pharisees were, it says in verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, how in the world could they think such a thing? Well, because, again, he could not be the Messiah. Just impossible. Because he now heals on the Sabbath day. And then, to make matters worse, he just stokes the fire. And in verses 18 through 21, he sums it up by saying, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. He said, look, I'm sending this message, my message, and my grace, my mercy to the non-Jewish people. Well, they automatically knew that that just couldn't be true because the Jewish people in the Old Testament were God's chosen people. Therefore, it could not be. And so when you're thinking already, there's just no way this could be, then you start believing against the evidence. And you begin to believe a little bit of what you want to truly believe. Then we find the setting even more so on the works of the Messiah. Look in verse um, 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. 
<clears throat> and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard that, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. I want you to notice something, please. That if you're a skeptic this morning, that the Pharisees saw the miracles. They witnessed the miracles. They were not denying that there was a supernatural occurrence happening here. They could not do that. Now, he couldn't be the Messiah because he didn't fit in their mold. But he know, they know he's doing supernatural work, so it can only be one of two things. It's either of God or it's either of the devil. And Jesus said, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. You've got to have unity in your family, in a church, in a nation, or it's going to fall. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, verse 27, by whom do your sons cast them out? Because there was other people that were doing some supernatural acts. Therefore, there will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says, I'm a, I'm, I am of God. Look in verse 29. Or can you some, someone enter in a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, he says this. He says, look, if anyone is going to go in and plunder a house, he gives this illustration, then you first bind the leader. If you bind the leader, then you can go in. He says, I'm not binding Satan at all. In fact, rather, if I'm working for him, I'm not binding him at all. Now, this is all about the devil, but it applies, if I can just get off course just for a moment, to anything. If you're a leader of something and Satan binds you, then he can come in and plunder the rest of it. He can plunder your house. He can plunder your business if he binds you. How many men are, are bound by uh, lust or pornography or an addiction in their life? And it's just like Bill Gothard's umbrella protection uh, analogy where he talks about the man is the protector of the home and then the woman and then, and then the children. Well, you take that big umbrella out from underneath it and all of a sudden the rest of the family becomes open prey to Satan. You first bind the strong man. So he's giving this argument and then we look not only at the setting then, but then we look at the sin itself. Therefore, I tell you every sin. Wow, that's, that's pretty strong. First of all, he says every sin and then he says except, except for one. And so I don't know if you like the English here or not, the English translation. You may say, well, it's not every sin because there's an exception. But it is every sin. Every sin of its type that we think about is forgivable. There is one sin of a different type altogether that is not. First of all, let me share with you what it's not. It's not adultery because David was forgiven for that. It's not murder. David was also forgiven of that in the Old Testament. It's not divorce. Oh, my goodness. Hosea is a prophet of God, and he was divorced. It's not, and, and you say, well, pastor, look, um, you know, it, it says right here that anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come, in verse 32. It's pretty obvious what the unpardonable sin is. It's attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. It is knowing that God's doing a work and saying, no, Satan's doing it. You say, well, how can that be? Paul, the apostle Paul, persecuted the Christians before he was saved on the road to Damascus. You know, I know of people that have been atheists. They, they 
you know, they say they, they didn't believe in God. They hated God, really. They, so, you know, like the atheist says, you know, I, I don't believe in you, but I hate you anyway, that kind of thing. And so they did everything they could to oppose Christians, and now they're saved. How can you do that? How can you say that this is the, the unpardonable sin is just simply attributing the works of God to the works of Satan? Because that can't be what it is. And so what is it? Well, maybe in times past, you think to yourself, well, I know what you're going to say, and I, you know, I just don't, don't really follow it. You know, I think what it is, no pastor really knows what this verse really means, and so they just come up with the best explanation possible. No, within the setting of it, this is the definition. And the definition is this. It's a willful, knowing rejection of the Holy Spirit's call to salvation. You say, well, Pastor, where in the world did you get that from that passage? Well, let's look at it. You see there's a problem here with people believing, people seeing. Over here in chapter 11, verse 20, it says two, three different cities rejected Jesus Christ, his call to their salvation. And then you can find the Pharisees were also rejecting as well. There's a problem here is that the Pharisees were believing what they wanted to believe. They saw the miracles. They were interpreting them the way, any way they wanted to. Seth Godin, who wrote a book on marketing, said basically when you advertise today, you're not trying to convince somebody to change their mind. You're <coughs> affirming what they already believe and trying to motivate them to then go out and buy what they want. Basically what you want. That's what you're doing, he says. And so people believing today what they want. We can see this in the world of politics in the last few weeks. Don't bother me with the facts. I know what I want to believe. And that's happened really on both sides of the aisle many times. And so you and I just see that being played out in the world, some of the things that's already in our heart. No matter if Jesus were to come to this earth right now and introduce himself to some people they would find some sort of explanation for that. They just simply would not believe that. They, they don't want to. And that we find out that really it's hard to believe in God. Thomas Nagel, who philosopher, philosophy professor, I get that out, at NYU, in his book, The Last Word, said, belief in God is a fearful thing. Belief in religion is a fearful thing. Now, he's not talking about the rituals. You know, we do that. We do the ritual stuff all the time. Everybody since Adam has been trying to figure out again some way to appease or please God without actually following him and taking their hands off their own life. And he's not talking about, well, if I do this ritual, if I get baptized, I'll do the Lord's Supper. If I do this, I do that. And then I'll live the way I want to. I'll appease God. He's not talking about that kind of religion. He's talking about a religion, a faith that really changes your life. He says, that's a fearful thing. He says, a lot of my intellectual friends believe that, and it bothers me because I don't want there to be a God. If there's a God, then I have to give up control of my life. I don't want there to be a God out there somewhere. And then we understand how laws work, how etiquette works. And when you're meeting someone, the greater always has to reach out to the lesser. And I don't say that in, in any terms except for, let me give you an example. You know, very few people who perhaps work in a business would then call up the CEO, maybe in another city, and say, look, I'm going to be in town. Uh, let's have dinner. That, that doesn't happen. No, the CEO has to reach down to the person that's maybe a vice president somewhere else and says, hey, I hear you're going to be in town. Let's have dinner. 
You wouldn't go to the White House and say, look, uh, you know, just, you know, knock on the door and say, Donald, you know, we got to force them out here and I had a guy to cancel. Would you like to play today? No, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because the greater reaches down to the lesser so much more with God. God is in a different realm altogether. He's, he's like in a different place altogether. He's not really human as we, you and I think about a human being. He's God. So he has to reach down to man. In fact, we look in the Bible and we find out that people don't discover God. God is revealed to people. Listen to what 1 Corinthians says. Paul says, but it is written, what no eye hath seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things which God has revealed to us through his Holy Spirit. Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He doesn't see it at all. Just doesn't see it. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And I've said before, when you're born, God puts the knowledge of God in your heart. And it's, that's why it's so easy for a child to come and believe, and believe what they see and what they hear and what they, they imagine in their own heart rather than just believing what they want to believe because the world has come in and given, given them other desires in their life. You and I find it hard because without God revealing himself to us, we just can't see it. Here's what the Bible says. In John chapter 6, verse 44, it tells us, no one, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he does that through his Holy Spirit. And so, we don't know anything about God. We're kind of in darkness. And God comes along, and he begins to, we begin to see things, and we begin to reveal things as he invites us to come in and get a glimpse of who he is. Now, the very moment, maybe I hear a message, uh, preached about God's word, and I thought, wow, you know, that, that rang true with me. I, I can see it. I got, I got to feeling a little convicted about that, that maybe I ought to do something. And so you come back, and you come back some more, and come back some more. And pretty soon, the lights are just turned on. How many times have I led somebody, at least a half a dozen times, where I've led somebody to Jesus Christ in a personal faith, and they look back up to me and say, wow, I, I, I can see it now. Man, I just couldn't see it before. But I see it now. You and I are in that spiritual dark place. We cannot see God and see ourselves as God sees us without God revealing and drawing us to that point. Now, when you think about that, and that's important to think about, you can see why blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is resisting the Holy Spirit's call in your life. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. God was calling them just like he was calling everybody else. And he, they were finding reasons not to believe, to satisfy their own mind because they were rejecting the revelation of God. Let me, let me put it in this term. I, I like this illustration. And uh, suppose you're in a room. This is your spiritual life. You're in a dark room. It's, t- it's pitch black. And you feel around. You know that there's some furniture in there, maybe some clothes around. But you really can't see anything. Your eyes don't even get adjusted. The door opens, and someone walks in with a candle, sits right in front of you and says, ooh, I can see a little bit now. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Come and, come and spend some time with me. I've got to go. Okay, well, thank you for the candle. Thank you for the light that I have. I appreciate that. And so you look around, and you scratch your head, and you say, wow, 
I need to clean up a little bit here. I think I need to clean up. I, I see a few things. That same person comes back then with another candle. And now all of a sudden you see even more. You see what kind of room that you're in. You can see things so much more clearly. And a third one, and a fourth one, and a fifth one. And all of a sudden, one day, <clears throat> the room's lit up. And that's good news and bad news. Because as you're looking around, you can see yourself on how you really are for the first time in your life. No excuses, no blame game. There it is. There it is, the mess that your room is, the mess, that, the brokenness that you experience in life. But you also see the light of hope. You see the way. God has revealed to you that Jesus Christ is the way to get forgiveness of all those sins and have a life worth living. And you think, oh, I need to be saved. That's what, that's what it is. I need to repent of my sins and ask Jesus to come into my heart. But you think, don't want to do that. Not today. I do want to do that. But not, not today. i got to think about this. And so the guy comes in, the Holy Spirit, in this case, the Holy Spirit comes in, takes some of the candles away. You can still see. No, no harm done. You can still see. Just not as good as you could before. And he comes back in and brings more light. No, don't want that. You know, I, that pastor preached against one of my pet sins. I don't want to hear that. I don't believe that. Culture doesn't believe that. And I, my, my friends don't believe that. I don't want that, okay? So he takes away those candles and grabs a couple more on the way out. And you're looking at a place where it's like, okay, it's getting kind of dim here. I can't see very well. And it gets darker and darker and darker. And once it gets pitch black in your life, the Holy Spirit will not come back and bring you any more light. Perfectly justified in doing that. He's doing all the work bringing you the light, and you've rejected it. You've rejected and said no, no, no. Not today, not today, not today. Now, something happens to your heart, and believe me, it's, it's really not so much that you begin to hate God. It's not so much that now you become a total atheist and, and you know, you're just working for this company or that, that firm or, or that nonprofit just, to, you know, to kill off all Christians or something. No, you, you just don't care that much. In fact, you may be in church today, could be, and you think, oh, you know, somebody keeps dragging me to church and it's just water off a duck's back. You know, I'm listening to what you're saying, but, I, and I, I agree with it intellectually. I just don't, I'm just not feeling it. Maybe another time, I'm just not feeling it. And suddenly you just don't have the desire anymore to ask forgiveness of your sins. You don't have the desire anymore, the light of God in your life to say, God, I want to repent. I want to do something about what's going on in my life. So we ask ourselves the question. In fact, this, I, I said to you a few moments ago, this almost happened to me. I, was, uh, I found out about the gospel when I was about 12 years old. All of a sudden, the light kept coming in, kept coming in. All of a sudden, boom, the light in my brain went off. Okay, I get it. I get it. For the first time, I'm beginning, at least beginning to get it, maybe a year before I really sunk in, year two. I remember where people would come in and share Christ with me, and I just, oh, this is the time. This is the time. I remember gripping the back of the pew at Bogart First Baptist Church and saying, this, this is, it could be my day, but next week would be so much better. Let me think about it for another week. January of that year, 16 years old, I lay in bed, and suddenly it occurred to me, 
wow, the light's not as bright as it used to be. I don't know how I knew that. I didn't know all this, but I just knew it wasn't as easy for me. I, I did not want Jesus the way I wanted him a couple of weeks before. And it occurred to me, God, this may be my last chance. I don't know if I'll get another opportunity, at least not this good. And so I gave my heart and life to Jesus that night. Now, why are we challenged by that? Why is it, why is it that we just come and say, oh, the light's on? Like, I've witnessed the people before shared Christ, never heard the gospel much after hearing it three or four times or whatever, come to a couple of services, and I go and share Christ. Boom, the lights turn on. They immediately receive Christ. Doesn't happen that often. Why? Well, because we're challenged. Why is it difficult? Well, first of all, we really can't see it. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We, we just aren't seeing it. And then... There's a basic problem with our understanding of forgiveness. There really is. Voltaire, the famous um, atheist philosopher, died, and many stories are told about his deathbed experience. One is such, whether it's true or not, here's what he had supposedly said. When they asked him, he said, you're about to die. What if you die and there is a God? And Voltaire said, then he'll forgive me. After all, that's his job. And we think that sometimes. We think, oh, you know, God is a forgiving God. All through the Bible, he's forgiving and loving. And that's all I see in the Bible is love, love. Until we go through a book of the Bible and say, wow, I didn't know that passage was there. I didn't realize that was there. You see, there's always a conflict between God's holiness and his love. All throughout the scripture. And God keeps telling us, do not put them in conflict. There is a standard. There is a holiness of God. Sin does have to be forgiven. Jesus Christ died on the cross of those sins, but you, must, you and I must receive that free gift of forgiveness and respond to the calling of God in our life. Forgiveness is a problem. At least that's what D. Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones said. And I don't want to get into semantics whether you believe God ever has a problem or not. He just says God had a problem. And the problem was forgiveness. And he backs that up by saying, in creation, God just said, let there be light, and there was light. No problem with God on creation, but it took him thousands of years to forgive sin. Now think about that. Why wasn't Jesus born immediately to Adam and Eve? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not sure anybody does, but it took a couple of thousand years, a few thousand years before, several thousand years, in fact, before Jesus Christ came onto the scene. Forgiveness is tough. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dear friends, he took on your sins and mine. And the Bible really indicates to us that the father turned his back on the son because he could not stand to look upon our sin. Forgiveness is tough. It's tough with us. I mean, you know that. We think it's so easy with God because God's God. And he's an all-loving God, and there's nothing else about God besides love. I mean, everybody knows that, right? I mean, never mind that he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, you know, all all-knowing. He's full of mercy. There's judgment there. There's justice there. There's wrath there. There's holiness there. There's all kind of grace. God is all that. But we think, oh, you know, God's easy to forgive, but boy, you know, I'm, now, I don't forgive so easy. 
Now, most of us don't think that, but we, we really don't uh, forgive that much or, or that easily in our life. Why? Because I can tell you this. No matter, I can tell you, everyone here has been offended by something, by someone. That we have in common. I'll tell you something else we have in common. It's always someone else's fault. Right? Hey, yeah, it wasn't my fault. If I hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have done that. We, we put the blame game going. It's always, listen, somebody once said, if we took on 10% of responsibility of what we've done in a conflict with someone else, we would immediately drop to our knees and be convicted. Just 10%. And so we don't think we've done all that much. And so repentance comes hard. Not only forgiveness is a misunderstanding, we, for repentance comes hard. Tim Keller, great quote here. He says, there's a remedy to every sin if you repent. There's no remedy for any sin if you do not. And only with the Holy Spirit can we see this conviction and repentance. Listen to 2 Timothy. Correcting his opponent, opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps, maybe, perhaps, grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So repentance is not something you can just come up with anytime. Just like you can't decide, I'm going I'm to follow Jesus anytime. It's your choice to make, but it's only your choice when the Spirit of God draws you. The only way you can repent of your sin is to be convicted of that sin. The only way you can be convicted of that sin is the Holy Spirit shows you what you have done and you've received it. There's a problem there. Why? We don't want to think ourselves to be all that bad. I'm the same way. You're the same way. It's already, always somebody else's fault. And so if I haven't sinned that much, then surely God finds it easy to forgive me any time he wants. But let me ask you something. And, and some of you, this is not even going to, it's not going to work for you. But some of you it will. If the people on your row right now or right, sitting right around you knew your every single thought this week, would they really admire you as being a holy guy? Some of you would say, yeah, I think so. Well, you're not facing realities. You're just not facing realities. You see, when you and I can, can see that, I've never thought about that. The reason you haven't thought about that before and the reason maybe you're not convicted much about that now is because you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to do that. So we come to the place of saying it's easy to resist. I think I've got to reject that light. I mean, after all, I don't, I don't see my sin as being that bad. I see it all around me. I mean, I'm in the, the room's lit up, and I'm looking around. I'm thinking, what a mess. But it's not that bad. I mean, after all, it's, I, I'm sure my... My brother down the road, my sister down the road has just as big a mess. In fact, I bet you theirs is worse. And we find it difficult to admit and repent of our sins. Listen, no one who wants forgiveness gets beyond forgiveness. But the question is, do we want it? See, here's the, here it is in a nutshell. The only sin that God will not forgive is our refusal to receive his forgiveness. There it is. 
Now, the good news to that is there's nothing you've ever done, ever, or ever could do that God would not forgive. The difficulty is, is being convicted by that and being convicted with the light shining there that Jesus Christ is the answer and being willing to respond to that because you're not trying to do a ritual. You're not just trying to do baptism. You're not just trying to do the Lord's Supper. You're not trying to get married in the right way and all that kind of stuff. You're just simply saying, God, here's my life. Forgive me of my sin, and here's my life. You know, that night, as I was wrestling with the Lord before my salvation, I had no idea whether that was really the last night or not. I don't know. And one of the challenges that we face is that you don't know. You just don't know when the last step is going to be. I... Uh, Grew up in Athens, Georgia, and right down the road from that is at Atlanta, a place called Stone Mountain. In fact, the first church we pastored after we left seminary, we were 15 minutes away from Stone Mountain, paid $20 to park there every year, and you get a sticker, and you can go in free park. If you've ever been there, well, how many have ever been to Stone Mountain before? You, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, there's, there's this big, huge rock, and there's, there's carvings out there of soldiers and if you go down the other side, go up the other side, you can actually climb the mountain by yourself. Now there's one of those uh, um, um, trolleys or whatever, you know, up in the air. What, what do they call those things? Yeah, never mind. You know what I mean. Anyway, it, it's, it's got a cable going up, and, and you can ride. If you, but you can walk for free. Walk right up that mountain. It's about a mile up. And you get up on top of the mountain. I remember the first time I was there as a little kid. And I'm looking around, and I'm saying, you know, what's all this red paint doing all the way around the mountain? And it was explained to me that that is the line you don't want to cross because once you cross that line, there's no turning back. So what do you mean? I mean, you're going to fall off. And it's where the, the place where those uh, carvings are, straight down, straight down. And I'm thinking to myself, well, who has done that? Well, three, three people supposedly had. They just kept walking, kept walking a little bit more, a little bit more, and they, they wanted to peek over, and they started slipping, and they were gone. There you are, and you think, hmm, red line. I believe I can go one step past the line. And you step, and nothing happens. Maybe you feel the weight of your heels a little bit as you're almost sliding, but you think, I can go one more, and you go one more, and you're all right, and you... You turn around and say, see? And all of a sudden you slip. And you begin to fall. And you turn and try to grab at the rock. And it's just sliding. And you can't get those little rocks, and those little places that are bulging out from the mountain. And they're just, they're just cutting your fingers as you fall. And finally, you come away from the mountain. You go straight down. Now, the difference is this. Crossing a deadline like that, God's deadline, in this case, you're going to be screaming the whole way down. But in reality, you resist the Holy Spirit. won't be any screaming. In fact, there'll be a relief in some senses because God won't bother you anymore. God won't pull at your heart anymore. And here's the thing. You never know when that's going to be. You just never know. What about you today? Do you know for sure that if you were to die that all your sins would be forgiven and you'd go to heaven? 
Are you sure about that? He said, well, everybody knows that. Everybody, everybody knows I'm a good guy. I'm not talking about being a good guy. I'm talking about being a forgiven guy. Forgiven of everything that you've ever done. Because Jesus died for you. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, if the prayer of your heart is to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, all the pretense set aside, say, God, I know I'm a sinner. And not only that, but I know Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And I can see him now. I remember when I got saved that night, I, I imagined in my mind Jesus dying there as in the movie King of Kings. And when I saw him there, and I, would, and I remember seeing that movie and so convicted in my heart. And I thought, God, would you do this for me? You, you did this for me? Not only convicted of sin, but convicted that God loves you enough to do something about that. So now you want to surrender your heart to Christ. If that's the prayer of your heart, pray with me now. You can pray silently as I pray out loud, or you can pray out loud. It's up to you. Pray with me. Lord God, I know who I am. I see it. I'm someone that you created and love. But I've stepped away from you in sin. And I can see the brokenness of my own life. But I can see the mending power of the cross. I come to the cross where Jesus died for me. I ask you to forgive me as I repent of my sins. I'm going toward the edge of the mountain, but now I'm turning around in a safe place. I ask you to come into my heart, my life. I follow you with my life. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.